Good morning. We turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. Thank you, Stephen and worship band and team for leading us worship through song and prayer and scripture reading. Just want to take a moment to commend you for your sacrificial giving to Lottie Moon. As we know, the gospel is the only message that can save a sinner. And the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is one of the ways that we take the gospel to the nations. Our goal this year, $66,000. You have reached our goal every year in the 10 and a half years I've been here. And it is humbling. Um, I love you for that. If we didn't reach the goal, I would love you, but it intensifies the love just a bit. And I am so grateful for you because it is our responsibility as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the nations. And with that said, uh, this after this uh, our service this morning, or at least this part of the service, we're going to have Scott Bailey coming, and we know that he is being commissioned uh, to Papua New Guinea, he and Linnell and his boys, and of course, he is going to be translating uh, the Greek and the Hebrew, the original text. You know how much work it takes to learn the Greek and Hebrew so you can translate that into a language that does not have the Word of God? Well, that's going to be his, his mission. And so he's going to be speaking to you at the end of this, and then we're going to be commissioning him as one of our missionaries. So I'm really excited about that. Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first six verses today. Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not, not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mystery of Christ. We get to see it in more detailed fashion this morning. And we pray, Lord, that through the preaching of your word, that your spirit would warm our hearts to your grace and mercy and wisdom expressed supremely in your son Jesus Christ and by this mystery of Christ revealed through the Apostle Paul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been at the same time concerned and yet encouraged this week uh, concerned, among other things, at the threat, the very real threat, on religious liberty in the United States. For example, a bill that's being pushed called the Do No Harm Act, be aware of that, 
you can pray towards that end, which would limit religious freedom protections by making it harder for Christians to operate businesses, launch charities, or share their beliefs in the open square. In effect, it would strip out the heart of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act from the early 1990s. And so I'm concerned, as we should all be, and we should all be praying. And yet, I'm encouraged by the Word of God. And that takes precedence, all right, over my concern. It takes precedence. The Word of God takes precedence over our concerns. And in particular today, that the Apostle Paul did not see his chains. He did not see his imprisonment for the gospel as concern. Indeed, he sees it as part of God's strategy. Today we're told for the first time that the Apostle Paul is not writing Ephesians from a comfortable office or his safe living room. He's writing this letter behind bars and yet he marvels at the grace of God. He marvels at the sovereignty of God. And this is intended by the Spirit who inspired Paul to write this to encourage us. It reminds me of a story from Donald McCullough's book, 1776, about the Revolutionary War, of a, a man named John Greenwood who joined the war at the age of 16. And in a very short time, after seeing the atrocities and the casualties of war, he was utterly horrified. He was terrified. But then he saw this lone soldier coming down the road, and here's how he describes it. He was a man wounded in the back of his neck, and the blood was running down his back. And I asked him if it hurt him much as he did not seem to mind it. He said no, that he was only to get a plaster put on it and meant to return to the war. He says, you cannot conceive what encouragement this immediately gave me. I began to feel brave and like a soldier from that moment on. And fear never troubled me afterward during the whole war. Well, I believe that's one of several reasons for the Apostle Paul's jail sentence, for his imprisonment to encourage us. His imprisonment allows us to see the opportunity, to have the opportunity to behold an, in, an inspired perspective on how a person with the mind of Christ responds to very real government overreach. How a man, a person with the mind of Christ responds to very real persecution, 
very real injustice and apparent setbacks in his life and in his ministry. And analogous to how that injured shoulder encouraged John Greenwood to press on in the war, the Apostle Paul's example should encourage us deeply in times like ours. Indeed, Paul's liberties, let's be honest, were squeezed. That's what we're concerned about today, right? His liberties, his personal human liberties were squeezed, and yet it ends up advancing the gospel. In this case, we'd be missing an entire letter. Actually, there are four that are written during this time. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. We would be missing four letters, and in this particular case, Ephesians, which teaches us critical truths, fundamental truths, about the mystery of Christ. All because the Apostle Paul was treated unjustly and put in a Roman prison. That brings us to the first part of this passage. We see that the Apostle Paul is a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. Look at me in verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, notice, for this reason. For what reason? Well, for what he just laid out, most specifically in verses 11 to 22, where he speaks about Jesus Christ being our peace. Christ took the wrath of God so that we might be reconciled to God. And notice, making us one, making us one new man, one body, one, by one spirit, and so that we might come to the Father. Uh, and most particularly in that passage, he speaks about the fact that in Christ, by his blood, by his atoning work, he has made us citizens of a new kingdom, members of a new family, and living stones of this new temple. For this reason, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, now in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul's already prayed. It's a glorious prayer. I encourage you to memorize that prayer. It's, just, it's an inspired prayer. What better prayers can you pray than inspired prayers? But now he's about to pray again. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice, for this reason, I, Paul, and then notice in verse 14, for this reason... I bow my knees. And so Paul is about to pray, but note, he knows their hearts are troubled. And so he goes on an inspired excursion. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice in verse 13, just before he begins the actual prayer, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He's saying he recognizes that the people he has mentored in the Lord are discouraged by his circumstances. They are discouraged that their mentor, the great apostle Paul, has been put in prison for his faith. And so 
he goes on this inspired excursion to encourage them. I am not a victim of my circumstances. This is all by divine design. Nothing catches the Lord off guard. Even government overreach. Even persecution for my faith. Even true injustice. So he goes on this excursion. And, and that's why he sees himself as a prisoner, notice, of Christ Jesus. He'll say that again in chapter 4. A prisoner for the Lord. And not a prisoner of Caesar, who was Nero at the time. Now, humanly speaking, he wasn't a prisoner of Christ. He was the Caesar's prisoner, right? He was Nero's prisoner. Uh, the account that explains that begins in Acts 21. Verses 17, really all the way through the book of Acts. And there we see that Paul was arrested illegally in the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews believed he had desecrated the temple by bringing Gentiles into the forbidden areas. That is the areas forbidden for the Gentiles. On top of that, the Romans believed that he was an insurrectionist on their most wanted list. An Egyptian who had formed an insurrection against Rome earlier. So he was getting it from both sides. And so he was sent to Rome to stand before trial, stand before Caesar for a trial. That's why he's in jail. But Paul never thought merely in human terms. Let us learn from the apostle Paul. He believed in the sovereignty of God over all affairs. So much so that he saw his circumstances as a grace. It's remarkable. Look at me in verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. It's stunning how the fact that he is in prison behind bars for injustice and he fixates on grace. This is an example for us. He is no victim. He's not blasting the wicked Roman government, and it was wicked. You never see him blast the Roman government. His mind is on God's sovereignty in his circumstances and the stewardship of what God had entrusted to him that led to these circumstances. In fact, they were behind these circumstances, ultimately. Notice in verse 2. God's grace that was given to me for you. Notice in verse 7, which we'll look at next week, the min to minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Verse 8, to me, though I am very the least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. 
He's meditating on grace. Even though he's unjustly behind bars. Now this word stewardship, it refers to two privileges which God had given him. The first, he says, in verse 3 was a certain revelation. Now let me just tell you, God's special revelation has ceased. It ceased at the end of the apostolic era. We don't need a new word from God. We have it in the 66 book canon. Now, we are granted illumination on what God has already revealed, but the apostles were given special revelation. And they penned and scripturated that in what we know as the New Testament. And so he was entrusted with this certain revelation. Secondly, a certain commission. We'll see that in verses seven and eight. To proclaim that special revelation, that certain revelation that he calls it, to the Gentiles. And though none of us today have the responsibilities of the apostle, the apostolic era has ended, okay? We do have a stewardship responsibility. Every Christian here, and we need to hear this, and it's going to look different for all of us. Okay, but all of us, every Christian has a stewardship responsibility to the revelation of the mystery that was entrusted to Paul and to all the other apostles in the calling and in the location that God has entrusted to you. It may be as a stay-at-home mom. It may be as a school teacher. It may be as a coach. It may be as a businessman. It may be as a retiree. Whatever your location is, you have a stewardship calling to this revelation that was entrusted to the Apostle Paul and the prophets. And in particular, what he calls the mystery of Christ. Now, that word mystery is used four times in this chapter. What does that tell us? It tells us that this is a very important text on coming to terms with what the mysterion is. That word mysterion is used numerous times in the New Testament, I believe some 27 times, largely by the Apostle Paul. Uh, commentators calls it an open secret, something that was hidden but has now been revealed. Now, the first time we saw this word, we saw it in what I call the most important, highest expression of thought in the entire Bible. That's in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, where Paul says the mystery revealed to him, very word that he uses here four times, was God's purpose to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. And we looked at that. What does that mean? It means that in Jesus Christ, Everything broken that it came under the curse of sin and death in Genesis 3 is going to be restored even to a heightened fashion. The curse will be reversed. The sad things will come untrue. The broken things will be fixed and restored even to a heightened fashion in the new heavens and the new earth. And that mystery 
centers on the fact that it will come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, we see the ultimate purpose revealed to Paul. But here, a more limited aspect of that mystery. And so God's purpose is to sum up all things in Christ. And now in chapter 3, he's going to get more specific. What will this look like? All right? What is the pilot project of this new creation plan? And that brings us to verses 4 and 5, the mystery revealed for the sake of the Gentiles. Notice with me in verse 4. He says, when you read this, so when would they read this? It's likely that this letter would have been read in corporate worship. Scripture reading was always a part of corporate worship in Christ's church. In fact, Paul will tell Timothy, till I come, give careful attention to the reading of Scripture. When Scripture is read corporately and certainly individually... It is a means of grace for the people of God. The word of God comes to bear. The authority of God expressed through the word of God comes to bear on our natural, rebellious, and unbelieving hearts. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations... As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what is he saying here? This does not mean that there were no Old Testament indications that blessings would come to the Gentiles. In fact, if you read Genesis starting in 12, 3... God's intention from the very beginning, he said, was for the seed of Abraham to bless the nations. All the nations stemming from Noah's three sons, as we saw last week, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God's purpose would come about through the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. Nor does Paul mean here that the Old Testament did not foresee a future inclusion of the Gentiles within Israel. You can read that over and over again. Even when, when Solomon builds the temple, he refers to that. Indeed, the Old Testament foresees that the Messiah would receive the nations as his inheritance. Psalm 2. We looked at that a few months ago, didn't we? Uh, The Old Testament foresees that one day... The nations would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and as Isaiah says, even flow to it like a mighty river and a flowing stream. Isaiah 66. The Old Testament foresees that Israel had the calling to be a light to the nations. Exodus 19. So that's not what Paul means. In fact, in Romans 1-2, Paul writes that the gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so the gospel he proclaims is not plan B. It was proclaimed beforehand by the prophets in the Old Testament. So what gives here? Doesn't he sound a bit like 
many of the cult leaders and false prophets that we know of, like Muhammad and, and Joseph Smith and the Kansas City prophets who proclaim or at least claim that they have new revelation. Well, actually, that's not Paul at all. Paul is not presenting a new gospel. The mystery revealed is the organic fulfillment of what the Old Testament teaches us and foresees and foreshadows and prophesies like a full-grown oak tree. What was known was that Israel would be the means by which the Gentiles would be saved. What was unknown, what was inaccessible, was not God's plan to save the nations. What was unknown was the specific administration of this plan. Before the coming of the Messiah, for a Gentile to approach Yahweh, for a Gentile to come into the presence of the Lord, that Gentile would have to be united with Israel through the rite of circumcision. The mystery of Christ is not plan B, but the fulfillment of what that pointed to. All right? That's important. That brings us to verse 6. One of the most loaded verses filled with theology that you'll read in Paul. This mystery, here it is. Now again, don't separate it from chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, God's purpose is to sum up all things in heaven and on earth. And here he has given us more detail, more specific detail. So you can imagine chapter 1 and 9 and 10 looking at the forest. And now he's getting down so that we can look at the trees. Here's how this is going to come about. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, notice, through the gospel. And so Paul is going to clarify the content of this mystery with three important terms. And you can't see this in English, but all of them begin with a prefix that we would translate literally as together, together. See, when Israel wanted to emphasize a word, they would double it, right? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And when they wanted to speak it from the rooftops, they tripled that word. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And likewise, Paul goes after the alienation that naturally exists between different ethnicities, and in particular here, the Jews and the Gentiles, by tripling the word together. That prefix together is, is found in all of these three terms. So let's look at them. First of all, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now again, he's going after alienation. That's natural. In fact, it's still natural in a church. And the only way to overcome the natural alienation is by being filled with the Spirit. All right? 
And, and so alienation for people who have reconciliation, and we do, we already have it. It's been achieved. It's been secured by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But alienation, as I have said often, division in a church among the people of God, it bears false witness to an accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more heinous than that kind of false witness. What it says to the world is that Jesus Christ is not enough to unite us and to reconcile us. Paul's going after that. He went after it in chapter 2. And here he's going after it again. Because of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, you have been, he says, become, you have been made fellow heirs. Now, heirs, that is a vital word for the Apostle Paul. It, you, you, it's hard to overemphasize this word heir. In Romans 4, he uses it of God's promise to Abraham. That's the exact word that used, that phrase, that he would be, notice, the heir of the world. Romans 4, 13. Heir of the world. Not just heir of a little plot of land in the Middle East, heir of the world. All right? Now, in Galatians, he applies it to all believers. He says in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. In Romans 8.17, he uses this word and notice, if you are children, that is, if you've been adopted by the grace of God into the family of God, if you are children, then you're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. I like that. Now, if our faith and our understanding was perfect, and it's not, we are like the man in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Okay? Our faith will not be perfect. One of the benefits of death for a believer is your faith will be perfected. But until then, our faith is not perfected. But if our faith was perfected and our understanding was perfected, again, our understanding is not perfected. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see through a mirror dimly. But if our faith and our understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ were perfected, I would submit to you we would never, ever be anxious we would never, ever be discouraged. We would grieve. Jesus grieved at the tomb of Lazarus. We live in a broken world. We would grieve, but we would never be anxious. We would never be discouraged. We would never be discontented. If our faith and our understanding of what it means that we are heirs was perfect. We are heirs. Such privilege. Such privilege. Do you know what that means? I, I understand it better since we adopted Stephen. When you adopt a child, you take on the responsibilities and the care of that child. Such privilege. The only one 
in the universe who is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, in his perfections, in his power has taken on responsibility for every believer. He's taken on the responsibility of care, provision, and protection. We're no longer orphans. In anxiety and discontentment signals that we're still thinking like orphans. But as we saw in 2 Samuel 9, we are Mephibosheths who have been brought to the table of the king. But again, great privilege, but such responsibility. He's going to get to the responsibilities in chapter 4. In chapters 4 to 6, he's going to give us one command after another. In fact, 39 of them. 39 commands that we are to obey, not in order to secure our adoption, but as the house rules for those of us who've been brought into a new family. We'll get to that in in due time. But let us just meditate right now on the reality of the privilege of being heirs, joint heirs. And when you get anxious, and we get angry what you see in the news and in the culture, and it is broken, let that reality renew your mind. But notice, not only are we fellow heirs, Jews and Gentiles, because of the reconciliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are members of the same body. In fact, scholars believe Paul invented a word here. Members of the same body. There's, that word is not found in any other Greek writing. Gentile believers have been incorporated into the same body and have become, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 15, one new man. One body, chapter 2, 16, together believing Jews and believing Gentiles formed the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we saw last week, because of Christ and his all-sufficient work, we have been made citizens of a kingdom. So we have the, the privileges and responsibilities of citizenship. I find that deeply encouraging. We, we have been made members of a family and stones of this temple. But here he's going to pick up a metaphor that we first saw in chapter 1 when he said in verses 22 and 23, God has placed all things underneath the feet of Christ and appointed him to be the head of his body, the church, who is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that image, that metaphor for body, only occurs in Paul's writings. Many believe that he, he developed that metaphor from when he was first converted. And he was on his way, the road to Damascus, to persecute Christians. And the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and said, Why are you persecuting me? And so Paul reasoned to persecute Christians was to persecute Christ himself. And so he formed this metaphor by the spirit of this union of body and head. So Paul uses this metaphor for, in four letters in Romans, 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, 
and in Colossians. And, and in those four letters, when you see how that body image is used, it really teaches us a lot about the significance of Christ's church, which is so important in a day when many Christians do not understand or perceive the importance of the church. In fact, they reason, man, the church is so broken, I would just do better to be a part of it, apart from it. In Romans, for instance, and in, in Corinthians, uh, Paul's emphasis with regard to this metaphor body is on the relationships of the members within the body that they have with one another. That's the emphasis in Romans and Corinthians. So for one, unity. Again, unity signals Christ's reconciling work has been accomplished. It is finished. That's why unity is so vital, even in disagreement. The second thing he emphasizes in Corinthians and Romans with regard to the body is unity in diversity. And diversity means we need each other. You have different gifts than I have. Um, and, and so that's a very, part, a very important part of what it means to be the body. And then third, um, the mutuality of love and care among the members. Um, I need your love. And, and, and again, let me just say this as a side. Thank you for your prayers for my mother. Uh, many of you have reached out and have loved on us in what I would perceive as the most difficult and painful uh, three weeks of my life. And I have needed you and you have stepped up and I am grateful to you. And, and you, many of you have been through difficulties and, and members of this body have, have, have ministered to you. We need each other. We absolutely need each other. We need your gifts. I don't have all the gifts. You don't have all the gifts. So we need all the gifts for the body to function, right? Well, um, and, and we also need each other to display to the world and to the, to the angelic realm. We'll see in chapter 3, verse 10 of Christ's wisdom, God's wisdom in assembling this body. That's the emphasis in Romans and Corinthians when he talks about the body. In Ephesians and Colossians, his emphasis with regard to the body is on the fact that Christ is the head of the body. Now, why is that important? It speaks to his authority over the body and it speaks to his care and provision for the body. Church is not going anywhere, in other words, because Christ is head what no matter what laws they try to enact in this country, the church isn't going anywhere. Christ is the head of his body. He has authority over us. He's taken on the care and responsibility and the promise of provision. Both of those are deeply encouraging. So this body metaphor is glorious. And Paul says... Jews and Gentiles, believing Jews and Gentiles, those who've repented of sin and trusted in Jesus are members of the same body. And then notice the third term, partakers of the promise. Now this recalls earlier in chapter 2 verse 12 when he says that Gentiles are naturally separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And notice strangers to the covenants of promise. 
But now they're partakers of the promise. But included in this covenant of promise was the promised Holy Spirit. Where do I get that? Notice back in chapter 1 verse 13. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, manifests God's presence among his people, the Spirit is indeed the epitome of God's promise to his people. In the Old Testament, the Spirit enabled the prophets to speak. The Spirit enabled the kings to rule. Uh, the Spirit enabled the the. You could say the, the saviors, the, the judges to judge, the builders to build, and, and the artists to create. And the prophets promised a day when this spirit would fill every believer. Starting with the Messiah, chapter 11, verse 2 of Isaiah. Isaiah says that in that day when Messiah comes, he will be filled by the Spirit of God. And Paul says now the mystery that's been revealed is that by our union with this Christ, we share in the same Spirit. In other words, the twin proofs of the dawning of the new creation age is the coming of Messiah and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That is the promise that Paul is referring to. We are shares together in this promise. In Romans 8, which is probably the greatest chapter on the Holy Spirit that we can find in Paul's writings, we learn that the Spirit brings us new government. I like the NIV translation here just for this point. The mind governed by the Spirit. All right? All right, so our, we, we are brought a new government by the Spirit. Now, he, he governs our minds not by mysticism. He governs our minds by the Word of God. If you want to be led by the Spirit, open your Bible. Uh, not only that, he gives us new life. In Romans 8, verse 10, it says the Spirit gives life. Your new desires and your new capacities to love people and to serve them that's not inherent in you. The Spirit gives you new life. He also gives us new battles. In Romans 8, verse 13, the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So we have new battles. One of those battles is to put to death the deeds of the body, the flesh. And the Spirit gives us new confidence. Romans 8, 15. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. One of the reasons I have such deep peace in this dark time with my mother's health is that I know that when I pray, my Father hears me. I know it. And it's not based on my merits. I don't deserve anything. It's based on the merits of my elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has secured my adoption. It gives me new confidence in the midst of horrific grief. Additionally, he grows. 
He grows the fruit of, the, of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit of Christ in us. Love, joy, peace, patience. One of the evidences that we have been redeemed is that we grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control because of the Spirit. And the Spirit gives us all gifts. All of us have gifts. You may have one gift. You may have multiple gifts, supernatural endowments given to you by the Spirit for the purposes of glorifying God in Christ by edifying the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Paul is speaking about our great privilege that has been secured by the reconciling work of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these blessings come specifically, specifically and only through union with Jesus Christ and the preaching and the reception of the gospel. That's why we're missional people. Because the lost people in the nations, the people who live in darkness, have none of this privilege apart from believing, hearing, and believing this gospel. In other words, the mystery revealed to the Gentiles, the mystery revealed to Fisherville Baptists, is that we can be saved <coughs> and are saved along with believing Jews without keeping the law. Through faith in Jesus Christ who kept the law for us. He kept the law for us. And as that gospel is, is preached, as it is taught, as it is evangelized, people who hear that message and respond in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ are united to Christ. And with that union in Christ... They are made fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. But as we close, I want us to contemplate something. And, and I apply it this way just because of where we are with all the unrest in our culture. What if Paul had not experienced the injustice of wrongful imprisonment. Now we never pursue that. Scripture never tells us to pursue persecution. We pray against it, in fact. What I'm just saying to you is God's bigger than that. Not only would we be missing Ephesians, we would be missing Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and later, Second Timothy. Indeed, the church <coughs> has benefited for 2,000 years from Paul's wrongful imprisonment. God turns evil on its head. He always turns evil on its head. Look at the cross. The most heinous expression of evil in the history of the world. It was when these wicked people killed the only righteous, perfectly good man who ever lived. And that is such a good word for us today. Don't look at 
the current circumstances as an interruption in God's plan or a failure in God's care. It's actually the implementation of God's plan and the expression of his care. Let's pray. Father, these words we receive by faith and we believe. We believe by grace alone and we believe in Christ alone. And yet, Lord, we are like the man in Mark 9. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith. And I pray, Lord, that the the glorious truths of this faith, the glorious truths revealed in Ephesians 3, would be a means towards that end. And yet, Lord, I believe there are probably people here today that have never trusted in Jesus. I pray today you would use the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save them. That you would show them, Lord, that you would convict them by your spirit that they're a sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. And today they would believe in Christ and have their sins forgiven and that they would be united to Christ with all the privileges of adoption, all the privileges of union with Christ. And we ask these things in the name of our Christ, our savior, our Lord. Amen.